listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Banasarami, your host to PGX for Pharmacists podcast on the largest pharmacy podcast in the nation and one of the top 20 podcasts in genomics globally. If you're new to the podcast, I don't know why you would be, but I'm the pharmacogenomics medical science liaison and a mentor to pharmacists. Connect with us on LinkedIn and let's get the conversation going. We want to hear from you and how you're impacting patients, payers, clinicians, and what you've learned through your journey that you would want to share with us. Being a PGX advocate requires going beyond a certificate and reading an actionable uh, genetics report. So we want to hear from you. Let's connect. And I'm Becky Winslow, your co-host for the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. Most of you know by now probably that I'm a PharmD with 15 years of clinical pharmacy and pharmacy operations experience and almost 10 years of medical affairs and business development experience with pharmacogenomics company. If you've been listening to Benaz and I, you know my PGX knowledge and experiences complement Benaz's, and that's how we're able to bring our listeners such a comprehensive view of pharmacogenomics. A great way to describe the content that we bring you is that we educate our listeners beyond the PGX certificate program. With this being said, let's get today's episode rolling. We have a um, very famous, if you want to call it famous, <laughs> well-recognized. I like famous. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, very well-respected, very well-respected member of the pharmacogenomics community um, with us today on the episode, and that's Dr. Dave Kaiser, who you guys probably well know is a professor and director of pharmacogenomics at Manchester University. Just to give you a little bit of background about Dave, um, he graduated from the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy in 1986, and he completed a two-year fellowship in therapeutic drug monitoring or pharmaco and pharmacokinetics at OSU. Uh, before he joined Manchester, Dave was a professor of pharmaceutical sciences at Ohio Northern University. And this followed his work as a research scientist at Burroughs Welcome Company or Glaxo Welcome. Uh, very impressive um, stat here. Dave has over 80 peer-reviewed publications. Becky, that's 80. 80. That's a lot. That is very impressive. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I had to say that. Yes, that's a lot. Uh, this includes him being the lead author on two pharmacogenomics textbooks. He's the past chair of the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy Pharmacogenomics Special Interest Group. 
Dave was also named a fellow of the American College of Clinical Pharmacology in 2017. And in 2021, along with Dr. Tom Smith, he received an AACP Innovations in PGX Teaching Award. His current research is related to pharmacogenomics and opioid use disorder. Dave currently serves as co-chair of the Pharmacogenomics Global Research Network Education Committee and is editor-in-chief of Pharmacogenomics Foundations, Competencies, and the Pharmacist-Patient Care Process. So Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's just jump right into question number one. Um, that we have for you, and we're sure our audience is very eager to learn. Could you share with us, um, Banaz and I have alluded to this in some of our previous podcasts, but could you share with us your perspective on PharmDs and the PGX education currently available in schools and the continuing education that they're currently able to obtain? Sure, and, and first, thank you for the kind uh, introduction. Uh, um, I've, I've had uh, an opportunity to work with so many great people over the last uh, 33 years um, and actually going back to almost 40, 40 years. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Uh, and boy, what a question you, you lead off with, because uh, <laughs> there's a, a lot to unpack there uh, yes. with with the 100 and say roughly 40 schools. Let's say that number. I'm not sure where we stand exactly right now. But in, uh, I'm going to give some history too, some some uh, background. In 2005, uh, first survey came out looking at uh, uh, pharmacogenomics or at the time pharmacogenomics education in schools of college and colleges of pharmacy. And um, mm-hmm. at that time, uh, there was certainly a, a lower percentage of schools that were offering pharmacogenomics, and this really was uh, more so from a uh, elective standpoint. A lot of this has to do with the fact that the expertise to teach the subject matter was was sure. not around as much as it is today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. That survey uh, was repeated in 2010, and we saw increased um, content uh, hour. I should say, uh, um, really, contact hours, not not content. And there lies the problem. I think is that sure. from school to school, the content varies so greatly. Yes. Uh, and again, it's because we we don't have ubiquitous expertise that can teach this you know this subject matter across all the different schools that are out there. Uh, in 2020, I believe, um, part of that uh, survey was repeated in a subset, and recognize that that is post 2016. So 2005, 2010, 2020, I believe, was the last one. And 2016 was the uh, year that the standards 2016 came out from the American Council of Pharmacy Education, where it was required to have pharmacogenomics in the curricula of schools and colleges of pharmacy for the first time. Mm -hmm. So having said that, um, that requirement fell into two places. One was in the uh, basic or uh, I'd say applied science realm, where uh, the genetic basis for drug uh, interactions and disease states and in a broader topic of genomics overall was covered and then in clinical sciences or clinical uh, pharmacy where it was connected to outcomes and therapeutics and so those were the the two areas now having said that uh, we have seen different contact uh, time 
across different schools. Some schools may have an introductory lecture and that's it. It might be this right. is genomics. Be familiar with the word here, some terminology, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Other yeah. schools um, go to the a deeper uh, and, and broader uh, connection with pharmacogenomics, uh, maybe uh, 10 hours or so, or maybe up to 30 hours. And some schools go over 30 hours of PGX. And those are few, of right. course. Sure. But the, yeah, the point is, and to, to your earlier uh, podcast where you talked about education and pharmacogenomics, it's greatly varied. And there is no standard at this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I've always paralleled, or not paralleled, I guess, um, use pharmacokinetics as an example uh, for uh, a new implementation in pharmacy. I'm old enough to have been around when... Wise enough, not old enough, wise enough. (laughs) Yeah, I guess guess that with with age and being around for almost 40 years and doing PK and then PGX, that... I think that we see some very similar occurrences with one big difference. So when the technology came out to allow us to look at drug concentrations in biologic fluids, that was the key to the clinical implementation of pharmacokinetics, where that information could be turned around more rapidly and have a clinical impact. And of course, we saw uh, many different drugs that had narrow therapeutic ranges uh, that had uh, mm-hmm. a PK um, um, need in, in the clinic, wherever that may be, ambulatory care, acute care, where, ha- where have you. And so pharmacists were specialists at that time, and they started these therapeutic drug monitoring services. And that's, you know, that's why my fellowship was in therapeutic drug monitoring and pharmacokinetics. Mm-hmm. You, won't, you won't see a lot of these services around now because PK is more ubiquitous in the education. Right. Approach, right? Exactly. So, yeah. And so I, I, I think Becky and, and Vinaz that, that you know we're repeating this again, and it's it's pain, it's almost painful because we didn't do it perfectly, you know, right? Genetics, and then to see this happen again with pharmacogenomics is like, oh come on, let's 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 do better. Yeah, well, right. yeah, right, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know we've got got that technology, and then these therapeutic drug mm-hmm. monitoring services, and then as time went on, it became more and more a standard of, and I, I guess I would say competencies that were built sure. almost organically into schools and colleges of pharmacy for mm-hmm. PK. Now we've got, um, you know, pharmacogenomics and we've got the same issues, a lack of standardization of what is taught and to the depth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so and- we have- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I will say, and absolutely, we have a lack of standardization Standardization of, you know, what does someone competent in pharmacogenomics look like? Of course, if we don't have a set curriculum, <laughs> then we don't have a, defi- a definition for, you know, what does someone that's, um, you know, an expert or very well trained in a particular maybe even topic of pharmacogenomics. We we can't define that without uh, definitive education. That's what yeah, I'm right. trying. <laughs> right. And and again, we we just don't have enough faculty across all the different schools to tackle that. And mm-hmm. I, I think that um, one of the big differences now that is in place, it was not back when pharmacokinetics came about, were the board certifications right now, right? And so those are meant to have a standard um, competency, if you will. And I won't say I won't say a um, 
minimal competency, certainly not, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's that's a, an issue that I think is is uh, needed to be tackled. Uh, at any rate, um, we think about the the folks that go through pharmacy school now and what their education may be and the ability for a pharmacist to apply this clinically, whether it's in the community setting or acute care setting or, or where have you, is really very, very different. I, I'm I'm such a, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, uh, nerd, pharmacogenomics nerd maybe, yeah. but yeah. I want to see where it's being practiced. So whenever I go to a new town, um, uh-huh. I, I go into a local pharmacy and I ask somebody about pharmacogenomics. <laughs> Um, I'd had conversations with my primary care doc and I said, you know, can we pursue this to have this in my record? Uh, and they said, sure. And so I go into these pharmacies and I say, listen, I've got this data on pharmacogenomics. You know, can you, can you tell me what this may mean uh, just mm-hmm. in general? And most often, unfortunately, I get the answer. I, you know, I've heard of it, but I really don't know what it's all about. Right. I have had some very, very, uh, great responses as far as listen I don't know but I'm going to find out and get back to you right uh, yeah yeah and I had one pharmacist uh, pull their their phone up right away and say listen here's uh here's a certain thing I found in pharmacogenomics maybe this can help you so I really I really love that it's you know it's happening but it's just not happening with the intent of the penetration of implementation that we'd like and, and if you go back to implementation science there really were ways to do this. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You know what? We should call this a PGX Dave movement where everyone who anyone that uh, isn't knows about PGX and is a PharmD or doesn't have to be PharmD goes into a different town, visits a pharmacy and has this question. And they took a survey at the end of the month. Cool? I like that. It's a PGX Dave movement. Yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> grassroots, right? Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you've got this, this, um, issue, which really is is potentially going to be a, a bigger issue, at least from the community setting, where patients who have direct consumer test results can literally walk into the pharmacy with these results, at least right now from one company, and mm-hmm. ask the pharmacist questions about CYP2C19, SLC01B1, and DPYD. Um, yes. And, and that's without any clinician in that pathway, right? They order order the, mm-hmm. the testing kit, they you know put saliva into a tube, send sure it gets some results. So... Yeah, so we need to standardize um, not only the formal pharmacy education, but also then what do our pharmacists have available to them as far as continuing education? And, right. you know, yes. of course, yeah, we're all familiar with those one hour quick CEs. Yeah, you got to love those though, Dave. <laughs> oh, I'm glad they're out there. I, I absolutely. Yeah, true, am. true. Uh, but but mm-hmm. there's just so much more. And I think I think a lot of a lot of the approaches are to introduce the topic and they just don't have the time to go to the breadth and depth. Right. Um, yeah. But, but having said that, we also have these, you know, certificate training programs and there are a number of, of those out there. And like the formal education in schools and colleges of pharmacy, there is no standard for, for what is taught in these certificate training programs. That's correct. So That's correct. that same problem exists. Now, um, I've been uh, lucky enough to work with a number of, of great folks who I'm sure you all know, uh, and we rehashed the 2002 competencies in pharmacogenetics that was from AACP, and I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, Julie Johnson was involved with that early on. That was, you know, what, 21 years ago now. Yes. And in, 
in 2017, we updated those. And then pharmacy went to something called these um, entrustable professional activities, these EPA. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the last uh, year and a half now, we've redone the competencies again. So they're up to date. And I think I think that document, which is in uh, the American uh, Journal of Pharmacy Education, um, and it's freely available. Um, and then also a document from the American Society of Health Systems Pharmacy, um, or pharmacists, um, I can never remember that. Boy, that, <laughs> I've only known of the organization for 40 some years and I can't remember. Um, There's a lot of acronyms out there. Aren't there? The old alphabet soup. <laughs> yeah, it's an um, alphabet But they also have a document, the roles uh, for pharmacists in pharmacogenomics, clinical pharmacogenomics, I think it is. And, and they break mm -hmm. it down very nicely from the, you know, the uh, standard for uh, all pharmacists and then what the specialist would do. So, yes. so this is kind of where I see the landscape. There is no um, um, standard. Um, I know at my institution, uh, we've pursued a dual degree for our pharmacy students that want to do the uh, PharmD and the Masters of Pharmacogenomics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we look at the PGY2 residencies that are out there, and I think those are the the best you know year long patient intensive learning are, are right. great but there's really what i think less than there might be nine or ten of those nationwide right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so boy how are we going to get everybody through that kind of education uh yeah. so i think yeah and something else that um i've noticed just looking through for example pharmacogenomics job postings um for companies looking for someone um, who specializes in pharmacogenomics is they want the unicorn. They want that person that has that PGY2. And um, it, well, I mean, just like you stated, there's not that many opportunities for PGY2 out there, much less people that have completed those. So I often wonder to myself, um, you know, how long do they go before they find someone that, you know, <laughs> has the qualifications that they think are necessary for that position. Yeah, boy, that's a that's a, a great thought because mm -hmm. you know when they don't find these folks, mm -hmm. then they they get trained within the organizations themselves to the best they can. Now mm -hmm. uh, I I find it really interesting. You were I, I I believe overboard when you introduced me, but I I do appreciate that. But where I'm going with that comment is that I've never been formally trained in pharmacogenomics. Right. The right. only training I have is a certificate program, but I have a heck of a lot of work experience. <laughs> so. Yeah, and and that's that's another thing, right? I can't, you know, and, and you won't find you won't find that uh, on my CV, right? I mean, I've, right. I've done, uh, done a number of the uh, certificate training programs, and those are very valuable. Uh, mm -hmm. But again, we as a profession have not standardized those, um, right? And so I can I can recall one uh, one occurrence in particular. Uh, I was uh, uh, in my office at Manchester and I got a call from a resident in Columbus, Ohio, who was working in community pharmacy and they were starting to implement pharmacy in their community setting. And I asked, well, what kind of education did you get in pharmacogenomics? <laughs> said, well, the company provided us with four 15 minute modules Ooh. to introduce wow. uh, each topic. And, and they were calling because they didn't feel it was adequate. Yeah. Like, oh, that company has since uh, gone by the wayside. But um, I just thought, boy, there's a real extreme of, 
of, yes. you know, of one, right? And and others do others do wonderful. And and these certificate training programs come from really, really reputable sources. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're doing their best. Uh, but I think we'll see some standardization coming. It's going to have to happen. Good, good, good. Yeah, and to that point, Dave, I think we've talked a lot with uh, Becky and I have. That talked about this, and I think you and I have discussed this. Where you know, to to your point, just getting a CE is really not enough. Um, you know, the overnight CEs or the few hour CEs, you really have to have that experience. Now, where do you get it, and how is a whole different story. But you know, understanding when you get a PGX report, um, and and I always use this example when you have when you when you see that it says a poor metabolizer, it doesn't automatically necessarily mean there's a dose reduction, right? You, there's a lot of other things that impact, you know, if and when you should be doing a dose reduction for for that type of medication. So those all all those things that may not be on a report that you really have to know and understand to be able to truly have an impact on the guidance you're going to give either to the patient or the provider. So yeah. going back to what you were saying, um, besides the standardization, but we're, we're not there yet. Um, what do you think the pharmacist should be doing or where is the lack of that? Where is that lack? Do you see is it just, just that experience? So, you know, cause we see a lot of pharmacists on social media, they're all, um, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, PGX experts, but, it's just basically uh, purely based on that uh, CE that they've taken. Now, I'm not saying CEs are bad, but uh, exactly what you said, it does give them an introduction to PGX, which is really definitely needed. But what do we do beyond that? If yeah, you well, want to truly, you know, get there. Yeah, I think that um, the the folks that are on social media are playing a really important part uh, for from from a number of aspects. First, they're they're doing what is available to them, right, mm-hmm. uh, at large. And that's great. Uh, others have not taken that. And not only are they doing those things, but they're also promoting those. And that, that that's good in and of itself. But I think overall for the profession, I think that there's got to be these, these kind of standards and, and competency statements that drive the overall education. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily against those, right? I'm just saying that those are what are available. And they're, like I said, reputable sources, right? Definitely. ASHP has one, Mayo Clinic. Um, yeah. There's a number of different places that have these, and they're they're great. Now, I want to I want to talk about your example uh, about CIP two D six. Thank goodness the the colleges and schools of pharmacy are doing such a wonderful job at making sure these these students and these student pharmacists um, are watching the patient, right, looking at the patient and seeing what's going on with the patient. That's certainly primary, regardless of what their genetics may say, right, uh-huh. uh, but uh, to your point, with the um, um, CYP2D6, as an example, I've, I've said for a long, long time that we as pharmacists may be doing the best we can do with evaluating a patient's medication list. However, mm-hmm. it may not be optimal. In other words, we're looking at the patient, how they're doing, say, blood pressure-wise or, or other indices, depending on what the diagnoses are and what medications they're on relative to those diagnoses. Um but are we able to interpret the information appropriately? So CYP2D6 poor metabolizer, uh, first of all, if they're on active medications that are provided to them as opposed to say prodrugs, right? There's that context. Right. Um, if they're on active medication provided to them and they are responding a certain way, we certainly wanna make note of that. That's the most important part. 
but it's the interpretation. You can go into any pharmacy system and find a drug-drug interaction checker. And sure. you may see uh, the situation where a patient receives a medication, then receives another medication that may be an inhibitor of CYP2D6, and it's alerted via some alerting system. And of mm -hmm. course, if the person is already a poor metabolizer, there may be nowhere for them to go as far as downwards in drug metabolism. And if they're responding to the medication uh, the way that they're supposed to, um, certainly we're going to be monitoring the patient. And you you evaluate that interaction in a different sense than if the person uh, were an intermediate metabolizer and they're receiving an inhibitor and phenoconversion can occur. So I, I think that there's so many layers to evaluating a PGX test results report. Uh, from the dosage formulation standpoint, to the uh, disease standpoint, to the physiology standpoint, uh, to the underlying genetics. All of that has to be taken into account. I think it it kind of builds, right? You've got the underlying genetics, uh, and then you've got the uh, patient's physiology. So imagine uh, somebody who's in their uh, later years, say 70s or 80 years mm -hmm. uh, of age, and right. and so they've got a different physiology as far as drug eliminating organs. And then the pathophysiology that you layer on top of that, well, it may also impact those organs. And all of that has to be understood with the underlying uh, genetics there. Mm -hmm. I, I can remember very vividly, one of my first positions was being a transplant pharmacist uh, way back in uh, the very uh, late 1980s and early 1990s. And of course, PGX wasn't there at the time. And I happened to be at the University of Pittsburgh where FK506 was being developed. And we, we know that now as tacrolimus. Um, but I can remember patients uh, who were being admitted, and I say transplant pharmacists, that term is used loosely uh, from my mm -hmm. perspective for me, uh, because I, I wasn't really post-transplant, I was pre-transplant. Okay. And it didn't, matter, it didn't matter what your genetics were, what the patient's genetics were, they were all poor metabolizers because they had just no functional uh, you know, mm -hmm. liver. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I can remember giving very low doses of medications and seeing patients just have reactions that were really unexpected. So my point is, is that we have to um, review the patient's medication list in the context of their physiology, pathophysiology, concomitant medications, and of course the underlying genetics, all that has to be put together. And, and I don't I don't think we're there yet, so. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's the one I always talk about. I, you know, the report doesn't capture all the things you just said. It's just very, very um, basic. Um, well, maybe basic is not the right term, but uh, I want to say raw data because it doesn't capture, like you said, the phenoconversion. Maybe some reports have it, maybe don't. You know, the um, health history of the patient or, you know, they've gone through uh, chemotherapy You know, are they, you know, missing a kidney there? You know, there's a lot of things that that um, report doesn't capture that we need to take into an account. And then if there's a generic variation for that specific individual that they're uh, and they're on that medication, that doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be a change in therapy. You have to use that, um, you know, the the report as another tool to guide with the presentation of the patient. So there's all these factors that I don't think is really fully understood. So when we look at a report, we just take it at face value. And I speak generally, I'm not speaking of every single person, but that those types of education, I feel are come with experience and actually sitting down with the patient, having to read it, understand it, going back to your pharmacokinetics dynamics 
in everything else to have a good uh, full report for a for a patient to be able to give it to either patient or a provider. So those are really come with the experience, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I they think... they can't be all taught in every right. discipline. You got to talk talk cardiology, oncology. You know, there's a lot. It, it just it's just a lot. Yeah, I think <laughs> the empiric knowledge that uh, individual pharmacist gains following some education in pharmacogenomics is is likely the most valuable, right? When they're seeing patients and and as they see more and more patients, they build this experience that nobody else can really get um, as, as far as uh, right. patient care, unless you're uh, an individual who's done a PGY-1, then you go to the PGY-2 and focus on pharmacogenomics. But but I think that all these efforts out there are, are good things. I guess that... Um, one of the one of the uh, comments that Howard McLeod made, which I absolutely love, was that you know we'll really know that pharmacogenomics is there when we don't talk about it anymore, um, right? Because it's just going to be a, a given. And I really oh, love that's that. Interesting. Yeah, I love that saying. Right? I, I think, uh, of course, Dr. McLeod has just been a, an absolute uh, uh, leader in in giant in the in, in pharmacogenomics for for a long time. So I've always appreciated his insight. But anyhow, I, I think that, um, you know, the interpretation uh, is so intricate uh, compared to the way that um, it may first be perceived, you know, as a patient had a blood transfusion recently before testing, um, is the is the patient, um, you know, have a rare variant that's not tested for uh, and so, you know, you get a result back to say it's a, you know, star one as an example, you know, a deferred star one. And so there's just so much there and we're all learning more and more. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad the effort's there. It's it's great that it's on social media. It's great that people are talking about it. And, and there's a lot of op opportunities for people to learn. It's just that right now those opportunities aren't standardized. So I guess I've, I guess I've talked about that enough. So. <laughs> no, you can never talk enough about that. But in your ideal ideal world, um, what should pharmacists that want to really dive deep into get into this? Uh, like you walk into one of these um, pharmacies and one of them is like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I want to learn. And that's what I want to implement in this pharmacy. Glad you walked in here, Dave, today. So what, what would be those steps that we, you would have them do in a more idealistic world if you could make that happen? Yeah, so I think... I think a progression, right? I think their first introduction may be a one or two hour CE. I know that we were involved with putting together a uh, a CE recently. It's and it's freely available that looked at pharmacogenomics uh, for drugs that were in the top two hundred by number of prescriptions. And so I think that uh, background uh, uh, initial CE, some context to drugs that they see commonly would be appropriate. Uh, you know, look at um, the the literature look at um, some of the um, you know some of the um, training programs that are out there, but I think underlying all of that is to have a checklist next next to the pharmacist, and that would be the competency statements. Have the pharmacist look at these competencies for clinical pharmacogenomics, and look at the description of the competency statement, and then and then fill in the backstory of each of those competency statements. I think you do that on your own. Uh, you're going to put yourself in a, in a really good position. I mean, these competency statements talk about um, 
many different aspects from the ethical, legal, and social implications kind of inter intertwined throughout or interwoven throughout, talking about when to refer a patient for a genetic issue beyond pharmacogenomics, uh, talking about um, understanding uh, disease risk versus um, carrier status. Uh, I, I think there's just so many pieces of information that can be can be driven by those competency statements. Yeah. And, you know, an individual can do this on their own. It takes effort, right? It takes a lot of work to do that and to learn it on your own. But I think that's that's a, a an underlying approach. And okay. fill that in with a certificate training program, but but you need to go beyond that. And then also watch for what standardization may be coming uh in 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 pharmacy. Um, yeah. Definitely. I think we're all we're all trying to figure that out really. Yeah, it's a it's a work in progress, but you know, it's it's your genetics, it's it's always gonna be complex, always new things coming, more things to learn, but it's a good start for sure. Um, so here's one other thing. Um, they, you know, there's been a lot of pharmacists, again, uh, doing the right thing, trying to, you know, learn from C starting the CE, right? That's, that's a way to go. But assigning an acronym to their name with the CPGX and not realizing that when we do that, we're really discrediting ourselves since it's not a, an accreditation, right? So can you tell us about that or, or your thoughts on that? Because, um, Becky and I have had an episode speaking about that to educate pharmacists. Maybe that's a lack of education. They may not even know. Um, so wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, the uh, standard has been uh, typically to have um, formal education um, abbreviations after a person's, you know, name mm -hmm. based on the profession, right? Like BS for Bachelor of Science or PharmD sure. for, you know, even, even from the standpoint of the early 2000s, when we switched to the all PharmD, uh, there were uh, individuals who did post uh, Bachelor of Science PharmDs, right? So mm -hmm. a BS PharmD means something different than the PharmD to them, right? Sure. Um, and then um, we think about um, uh, board certifications, right? Uh, um, a board certified geriatric pharmacist, uh, as an example, um, those are standards. And I think that those abbreviations come when they're standards. And as yeah. we've talked about, the uh, certificate training programs are not standardized. So they mean really something different. Um, and then, you know, of course, if an individual has uh, some uh, recognition from a, an organization, uh, that you might see, you know, FCCP, so Fellow of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, as an example, or uh, uh, F um, APHA, right, Fellow of the American Pharmacy Association, whatever. Those are those are, but there's a standard to get to get to get those titles also, right? And sure. so the difference is standard versus no standard. And so typically we haven't been putting um, um, letters after our names professionally when there's not a standard there, right? Um, I again, I, I have. Um, I think it's important for people to uh, say, okay, what is um, um, CPGX? Okay, and maybe that drives somebody to look into a certificate program. Sure. And so I think that's okay too. Uh, I think it's all evolving. I think it's all that we're in this, we're right. In this evolution, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember nine going on 10 years ago when I first started out in pharmacogenomics and I was teaching uh, 
the test to learn program and students would ask me, so what do we call ourselves now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, um, you know, what can I put behind my name? You know, they wanted to distinguish themselves. They wanted to let people know that they had this newfound pharmacogenomics knowledge. Um, and, you know, the answer wasn't clear 10 years ago. The answer isn't clear today <laughs> because still, um, you know, there's not a defined curriculum and there's not a defined um, acronym to go with it. So, yeah, this is not a new issue. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think it's just an evolution. I'm, and I'm sure. glad we're evolving. <laughs> I, yeah. I would be concerned if we weren't. Um, yeah. But exactly. I also, I, I'm sorry. I said, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, another example would be with uh, master's degrees, right? We see somebody with MS after their name. And I've often wondered mm -hmm. MS in what, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, I do, do think that it should be MS, maybe PS for pharmaceutical sciences or MS PGS, sure. right? For master's in pharmacodrops. But again, master's programs are accredited by a higher learning commission, typically right. some sort of, 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 of accrediting body. So again, that standard I think is, is still there and we'll, and we'll get to it. But um, again, I will say uh, that um, I started in pharmacogenomics in the late 1990s when I uh, spent some time looking at N-acetyltransferase. And uh, back then there was a, 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 you know, a, a antiarrhythmic drug that we used to use, procainamide, right? And, mm -hmm. and acetylprocainamide and, and there was a bunch of stuff going on there and Anyhow, so I, I kind of started that in the late 1990s, and um, I've never had any formal training, uh, but um, I, I think that's where that empirical learning is so valuable because we can't all do the PGY2s. That's right. And I mean, and like you've talked about your research experience, um, you've been a professor, you know, like, for example, my pharmacogenomics knowledge is heavily vested on market access, payer reimbursement, um, medical necessity, um, that side of pharmacogenomics. So there's no certificate program for that that I'm aware of, <laughs> you know, like, we all can contribute, I guess, is what I'm getting at, um, is that, uh, you know, what would the end-all, be-all pharmacogenomics education look like? Um, of course, I guess when we go to pharmacy school, we don't learn a lot about payers and payer policies and right. such either. I think that uh, we have to learn that on the job typically as we go. But yeah, yeah. typically when you call the insurer and they say, no, we won't pay for it, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, there's different types of pharmacogenomics education that we can all contribute or uh, knowledge we've gained through work experiences, I guess, too. So, well, on that note, um, how about giving us an update on your research with pharmacogenomics and opioid use disorder? Oh, yeah. I, I Thanks for asking about that. I was really... Um... Uh, fortunate to be asked to to help out with with the project and kind of taking a little bit uh, uh, of it to heart just from just from the PGX standpoint. So um, uh, I'll I'll tell you, Dr. John Sprague uh, in the state of Ohio is uh, leading uh, our opioid issue. Of course, we've got we've got an unfortunate ranking near the top of overdoses and deaths in Ohio, oh, yeah. and that's. Um, 
that's where this is driven by. And, and uh, Dr. Sprague has just been uh, fantastic at bringing folks together to get different aspects uh, completed for the state of Ohio, and hopefully, hopefully, it'll it'll uh, you know go beyond Ohio. But mm-hmm. uh, we were involved in I was involved in uh, uh, really an analysis of a analysis of a study looking at opioid use disorder risk uh, based on pharmacogenomics, and uh, recently had a uh, um, a group of us had published a, a paper on that in clinical pharmacology and therapeutics, and it's driven some other aspects to look at. Um, the biogeographical genetic ancestry groups okay. and uh, what risk might be in different groups based on on genetics. And I, I think that if we can get to a concise uh, and robust uh, genetic risk analysis, that's the real goal. And right. so uh, we identified six variants, uh, four of which uh, were related to increased risk of opioid use disorder and two that were related to decreased risk of opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's much more uh, backstory to that. Uh, Dr. Sprague and uh, uh, Fearmuth from uh, Dr. Fearmuth from uh, Cincinnati, uh, they've, mm-hmm. they've just been great. There's just, it's just a great group of individuals. I can't name everybody. Um, and I'm just one, one of the folks that's in, in, in really helping out in that aspect. But I think we all recognize the opioid uh, crisis that we have, and, and we're all putting an effort to try to uh, at least at least soften that to some extent, uh, if not a great extent. Oh, sure. Yeah, Absolutely. we we appreciate you doing that, and we can't wait to hear the results. And or as you continue, you guys and the team continue working on that, and we appreciate you doing that. It's really it's really much needed for sure. Um, but we're at time. We can't thank you enough for coming on, Dave. I know you're busy and doing so many things. But I hope you consider to come back and continue conversations. And maybe next time it will be about the uh, the research you have and you might have some results with it. We will all want to uh, hear about it. Yeah, so there'll, there'll be a change coming for me. Uh, um, okay. you know, got, uh, Are we um, the first to hear it? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I, I've, I started. My I felt first, special for a second, Dave. You know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I started my pharmacy uh, path in 1979, and as of May 22nd, my formal uh, career will will be ending. I will be retired. Oh, yeah, that's good though. I mean, yeah, I mean, good and bad, but. Good. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll continue to be a mentor and you know yeah. educate because we definitely all need it. Oh yeah, sure. certainly, certainly I'll be doing some some consulting work, but most of my time is going to be spent with my grandsons. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But thank, thank you. So that's much. awesome. Well, that's yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dave, and thank you everybody for tuning in. We do a lot of PGXing on here, the PGX science, clinical application, and business, and we hope you learned something today or two. We love to hear from you. So, what can we teach you? Drop us a message on LinkedIn and let us know. And please make sure to share the link to this podcast with everyone so they too can tune in and listen to the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. Make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can visit us on PGX4, the number four, rx.com to listen to all our episodes. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For all of our episodes, please visit pgx4rx.com. That's pgx4rx.com.